Hey Bruins, welcome to season two of Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. We've got an amazing lineup of guests for season two, and we're excited to get started. Our first guest is David of Shardis, Senior Manager at Amazon's Supply Chain Optimization Technologies Organization. Nakin and I had the opportunity to speak with David, and we talked about his career trajectory that included several stops at major cities in the US and overseas, his passion for learning and his takeaways that he applies to everyday life, and his three kids. So without further ado, here is our episode with David. Hi, David. Thank you for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. Thanks for having me. So because this is a UCLA-themed podcast, one of the things we wanted to do was ask one of the questions that current applicants have to answer as part of the application. As always, we think it serves as a great introduction for our listeners. And so the prompt we've chosen for you today is, what would you say is your greatest talent or skill? And how have you developed and demonstrated that talent over time? That's a good question. I would say my greatest skill or talent is the combination of my work ethic and discipline. I'm a strong believer in giving 110% in whatever you do. And I've always seemed to have had a, a pretty strong work ethic and discipline that has helped in that regard. As far as how it's evolved over the years, I think I definitely need to give a lot of credit to my parents in terms of helping develop that work ethic and discipline. My parents are uh, immigrants to this country and like many immigrant families, they faced a lot of uh, challenges being uh, new to the country and uh, definitely had a, a very strong work ethic and discipline and worked very hard. And I sort of viewed that as an early age and that was essentially to be expected. So that was a, a definite influence in terms of that. And number two, uh, at early age, I was involved in a lot of uh, sports, uh, in particular running. I uh, started uh, competitive running at a, at a very early age and also played the drums. Both of those activities involve a lot of practice and hard work and, and discipline to try to improve. So I think that had a, a big influence also. What are some teachings or, or learnings from running that you've taken that you put into practice maybe today at Amazon? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I kind of joke with uh, the folks in my department. They uh, they often hear from me a lot of different running stories. I kind of like to believe that a lot of lessons in life I've I've learned through through running stories. And uh, I can tell you a, a short one actually right now that I, I told my team not too long ago, and that is related to the power of belief. Uh, as this actually comes from when I was at, at UCLA when I ran a 10K up in Malibu, which is just a little bit north of LA, as I'm sure you guys know. And uh, I used to have a very organized routine with respect to running races. I'd like to, you know, typical to how we, you know, think at Amazon, uh, we have this principle in terms of working backwards. So you, you have a goal that you're trying to accomplish and you work backwards from that. And in terms of, you know, getting ready for a race, uh, if, the, if the race started, say, at 8 a.m., I, I knew what I was going to be doing at 7.55. I knew what I was going to be doing at 7.50. Everything would work 
everything would work backwards mm -hmm. from that uh, starting time. And I had this sort of protocol or routine that took about an hour and I would do it uh, every race over hundreds of races. So anyway, uh, to make a long story short that this Malibu 10K, which was a pretty uh, big race back uh, back then, I uh, went through the, the routine. There was you know, a few thousand people at the race and uh, it was supposed to start at eight. Then right around eight o'clock, I, I noticed the race wasn't starting on time. And uh, that kind of threw off my routine because I was used to having this thing that worked backwards from that eight o'clock sharp and everything was essentially hidden on that. And uh, I saw uh, uh, the, the race director, you know, this guy with a bullhorn sitting on top of a podium, you know, uh, uh, before the race, dealing with a lot of the logistics. And uh, I, I actually went up to him right before the race there at eight o'clock and I said, hey, uh, this race is supposed to start at eight o'clock. And uh, he kind of looked down at me and, and uh, with a smirk and, uh, and said to me, you know, who the F are you? <laughs> and uh, uh, I didn't really bat an eyelash. I looked at him. And I said, I'm, I'm the guy that's going to win this race. Wow. And uh, he kind of looked at me and he didn't really think much of it and just kind of turned away and walked away. And, uh, and, and this is the principle I'm trying to, to get across in terms of the power of belief. You know, I usually went into race thinking I was going to win even if I didn't have that, that high a chance of winning. And after I declared to the race director that I was going to win the race, I really was on the hook for that. And that creates a lot of uh, power. And uh, long story short, in the middle of the race, I pulled ahead and uh, took the lead. It was, uh, you know, one of those races right there on the beach in Malibu. And I remember thinking and I was, I was going through the last couple of miles of the race that, you know, I have to win this race because I said I was going to win the race and I ended up uh, winning it. And then uh, at the awards ceremony, that same race director had to eat his words, <laughs> essentially, and, and give me the trophy to win the race. So anyway, long story short, I like to really emphasize to believe uh, strongly in yourself. And a lot of times, even if you uh, are not sure of something you it's very powerful to, to believe on what your goal actually is and, and try to follow through on that. It looks like you ran cross country uh, at MIT. Uh, but when you went to MIT, you studied math and poli sci. And that's kind of an interesting combination of majors. What made you pick those two? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And, and to be honest with you, when I arrived uh, as an undergrad at MIT a long time ago, like many undergrads, I really didn't know what I wanted to do and figured it'd be good to keep my options open and thought that picking math would be a good foundation for a lot of other things in the future. So I decided to major in math and had a, a concentration in political science, mainly because I, I thought it was very interesting and, and kind of cool to be honest and, and follow that uh, throughout uh, my undergrad time. So as you, you kind of mentioned earlier a little bit about kind of having a goal and working your way back to, to help make sure you, you get that goal. So as you were wrapping up your, your time at MIT, getting close to graduation, did you have a, a goal of kind of a career path in mind? And what, what were you thinking kind of right as you were graduating and, and your next steps for your career? Yeah, when I was an undergrad, I did a lot of tutoring. I had summer jobs. Uh, in an old program called the MITES program, which was a uh, minority introduction to engineering and science for high school kids. And I liked it a lot and uh, actually decided to try initially a career in teaching, teaching uh, high school. We had uh, some guy that came one day from the New York City Board of Education on a recruiting trip, gave a bit of a presentation, and one thing led to another. And I worked as a uh, high school teacher 
in the uh, New York City school system, which to this day uh, is one of the, the hardest jobs I've uh, ever had. And why do you say that? Maybe what was uh, one experience that colored you that way? Yeah, it's, it's hard to, to really put in words and really understand. I used to tell friends, you really have to be in the middle of it to understand. Uh, you know, you probably see stuff in the movies with respect to big, you know, large uh, inner city schools. You know, you have, you know, things like five classes a day, you know, 40 kids in a room, you know, complete chaos in the hallways and all that sort of thing. You're almost like a combination of a, uh, you, know, uh, you know, wear many hats. You have to really like push to keep, uh, control of the you know the classroom. There's a lot of challenges with respect to that. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, you know the educational system, you have a lot of challenges in terms of the level the the kids are at. So it's a combination of of many many things. So uh, to sum up, it's definitely a difficult cha challenge physically and uh, mentally to kind of you know have that energy level to to you know uh, work in that type of environment. Initially, it kind of explains how I ended up at UCLA. Initially, I, I had no, you know, no plans to go back to grad school or anything like that. I thought I would, you know, have that as a career. It seemed like a, a very, uh, you know, uh, valuable thing to do. I had a lot of respect for the teachers that I had had in high school mentors throughout the year. So I was you know, planning on doing that. And this is the 1990. 91 uh, school year. You know, we're talking 30 years ago in in New York City and uh, the city finances were, were not very good and there were impending layoffs and right in the middle of the year uh, they gave layoff notice to all new teachers like myself and uh, I remember getting that notice thinking okay well I, I better plan on, on doing something else if, if this goes through and I didn't really uh, have a lot of options I could think of so I thought well maybe I'll go back to grad school I, I already have a master's degree maybe I'll just continue and uh, get a PhD and I was uh, originally going to apply uh, to uh, MIT in Columbia, thinking, okay, uh, I already have uh, two degrees from MIT, you know, including a master's. I'm not that far away from a, uh, a PhD in that sense. And uh, Columbia is not far from where I live. <laughs> I lived in uh, actually uh, central Harlem at the time, which was about a mile away from uh, Columbia. So that, that was my plan to apply to, to those two places. And I remember I was talking to, you know, one of my running buddies telling him what my plan was. And, you know, my running buddy really didn't know anything about grad school, but, you know, he had no inhibition giving me his opinion on, on the plan <laughs> I had. And uh, uh, I told him where I was applying. He said, well, I don't know, you know, you, you're, you've lived in Boston your whole life and you, you've been to New York, the, the Northeast your whole life. It's, you know, cold here, it snows. I don't know, you know, why don't you go to California, maybe UCLA or something. And I thought, okay, that, that sounds interesting. I've, I've never been to California. And, uh, you know, one day I was walking uh, to, the, to the train station after work. I remember it was on 2nd Avenue on a cold winter day in uh, New York. It started the snow. And uh, this is, uh, you know, pre-cell phone days. And uh, for those of you, you young folks out there that don't remember what uh, pay phones are, uh, there are pay phones on the, on the street where you would go to. And back in that day, those days, you would have something called a calling card, which included a number you would call and a code that you had some funds in to do a long distance call. And I called UCLA main number and I asked them for the admissions office and I asked them to send me an application. And that's how I started my journey to UCLA. Wow. Good. That's a good man. You're a uh, running buddy. <laughs> Very good, man. So you, you start the PhD program in math. 
uh, with a focus on statistics. What was that program like for, for those of us who aren't familiar with it? Actually, it, it's kind of interesting. I actually initially started uh, as, a, as a PhD in political science because I had my, my master's in political science mm -hmm. and you know, thought I was closer to a PhD by going in the place I already had a master's degree. So that was my plan. Uh, and, and political science, uh, those of you who don't know, is all, all, also very quantitative. There's a lot of statistics and quantitative modeling in political science. And uh, there's a lot of statistics requirements for, you know, PhD programs in political science. And when I got there, my advisor said to me, hey, for the uh, stats requirements for, for the program, you can also take those courses in the math department. And since you have a math degree as an undergrad, why don't you go over to the math department and take them over there? I thought, uh, hey, that's, that's not a bad idea. And I tried that. And uh, believe it or not, I ended up liking the stats the, uh, courses so much that I ended up uh, switching majors to actually switch from the program of PhD in political science to, uh, to the math department. Because back then, actually, the stats uh, uh, division was not a department, it was actually a small division within the, uh, within the math department. They had been trying to create a department of statistics at UCLA for many years. It was close at that point, but at that point it was still a subdivision of the math department. The stat division in terms of the students was relatively small. There were under 10 of us uh, and we had uh, the stat faculty also. And because it was part of the math department, we technically were getting a PhD in math with a concentration or focus in statistics. So you actually, and things have changed a lot at, at UCLA and many uh, departments over the years too, but back then you had to take what uh, was known as qualifying examinations, PhD quals, where uh, after you finished all your courses, you actually had to sit down and take a series of written exams. And there were four of them. I remember them uh, vividly. You had to take, uh, uh, in, in terms of a stats focus, you had to pass a PhD exam in theoretical statistics and applied statistics. And uh, for the wider requirements, you had to pass PhD exams in real analysis and also probability. So it's it definitely very difficult. I had a hard time, especially with the real analysis, but uh, ultimately passed all those exams and everyone else had to also. Knocking, did you take the, uh, the three series at UCLA? I did. I did. And you had three C. Yep. Um, so David, we have uh, when we were there, we took uh, molecular bio as our major. Mm -hmm. and we have the three series, and I think uh, A and B are calculus related, but C is probability. Mm -hmm. so going into it, I wasn't sure about the class, and and the weird thing was, I never fully get the homework or get you know the answers right, but on the exams, I'd always be like the first or second highest score. And I never understood that. I just never fully got the homeworks, but the exams were where everything kind of clicked and stuff would just come together. And it was just, it was the weirdest experience. For me. <laughs> um, awesome. And it never happened to me in like any of the other classes. It was usually if I got the homework, I'd get the exam or if I got the homework, I might not still get the exam, but um, I, I just remember that experience because it was really weird. Was that experience like that for you knocking? Um, not so much. Um, I enjoyed statistics, but I found three. Pull, pull up your transcript. We can, uh, we can wait for you to log into my UCLA. I don't think our, our guests are, are that interested in my mm -hmm. lackluster grades. So 
<laughs> but back to, back to you, David. So as you were kind of, you know, you, you passed these, these difficult exams in different statistical methods, and as kind of you're, you're working on your, your thesis, your dissertation, to you, was a career in academia something you were considering, or were you interested kind of in, in the private industry? I was open to both, to be honest with you. I had a friend that actually worked at Lucent Technologies uh, Bell, Lot, Bell Labs, which uh, back then was a, a powerhouse in terms of uh, network and, and telecom and uh, wireless communication systems. And I uh, ended up having an interview over there and got an offer. And uh, you know, after being a, a poor grad student for, for many years, it, it seemed like an attractive route to, to take. And I actually didn't interview anywhere else. I actually took the offer of my, my first interview. And that was in uh, Chicago? Yeah, yeah. So I moved. Uh, it's kind of a funny story. I, I, I wrapped up my uh, PhD uh, in October of 1997, I remember, uh, you know, there's a lot of logistics you have to do when you finish your, your PhD, you have to defend it. You know, there's some, you know, paperwork in terms of getting it signed and submitted and all that. And I remember I was going through and planning the move and I got it all wrapped up. And, uh, I remember I, I, uh, moved on, on a Friday actually. And on Monday morning, you know, in Chicago, I, I was there for my first day at work at, uh, you know, bright and early in the morning. So there wasn't any break in between. A lot of folks take a break in between. I was uh, eager to start working and, and to get a paycheck after being a grad student for uh, many years. And uh, that's how it all happens. So at your first job here at, at Lucent Technologies, Bell Labs in, in mm -hmm. Chicago, you had a chance to work on 3G development long before, you know, smartphones existed. So maybe you could kind of let our, our listeners know what is 3G and what did it mean in terms of the, the technology that you were working on? Yeah, nowadays everyone's familiar with respect to, you know, 4G and 5G and, you know, everyone has a, a smartphone uh, across the, the population. And 3G essentially was the initial effort to create the technology and standard to allow higher data rates on your mobile phone to support internet access. Uh, it was a, a worldwide effort that involved the vendors, you know, the manufacturers of, you know, not just the cell phones themselves, but the network equipment and the operators that uh, provided the services that had actually paid uh, billions of dollars for the licenses for the airwaves to deliver that service. So this was the uh, intersection of all those efforts. There are standards bodies that uh, develop uh, these types of specifications that companies that can then use to uh, create the actual systems that support the technology. And one of the big things to know about standards is that you know standards are things that uh, allow interoperability. If you have uh, standards that are being followed, that means the uh, service providers, say you know the Verizon, you know the AT and T, they can buy equipment from different vendors and if they're all conformant to the standard, they can uh, you know, take that uh, network and, and populate with, with different pieces of equipment from different vendors and it would all work together and essentially in a plug and play type of uh, setting. And uh, the, the standards bodies are, are very hierarchical, very similar to say uh, political bodies. You know, you're, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the United Nations. The United Nations has different working groups mm -hmm. and different 
you know, sub subgroups and all that for different things. And it's the same thing with respect to technical standards. You have some working groups with respect to the core network. You have some working groups with respect to the radio access network and different layers within that at different levels of specification. Everything down to the bits and bytes of the messages get defined by the standard such that the engineering can develop to that standard. So essentially at the end of the day, it's a massive coordinated worldwide uh, engineering effort trying to uh, produce the technology under a, a time constraint. You know, there's a lot of, uh, or was a lot of push to try to develop things fast given the financial investment uh, that was made in that uh, sense. So very interesting, had a lot of fun. You know, you get to travel a lot to, you know, different countries. A lot of these meetings were happening in uh, Asia and, and Europe at the time to try to push the standards uh, through very quickly. What was the travel experience? Like, yeah, the, uh, the, the main countries kind of followed the, the players at the time, right? This is back in the heyday of uh, Nokia and Ericsson, some of the yeah. manufacturers of equipment back in, in the old days that probably most people haven't heard of. Nowadays, you don't see a lot of, uh, you know, phones with the labels Nokia and Ericsson on them uh, nowadays, but that would lead you to travel, for instance, to Sweden and, and Finland, for instance. And then, of course, you had Samsung, uh, also heavily involved, so you, you know get to go to Korea and a lot of the big operators. Uh, you know, Japan was heavily involved. Also, uh, I wouldn't say I have a, a one particular favorite. It was just very kind of cool just to have the heterogeneity of all the different places. You know, across uh, Asia and uh, Europe. Uh, the last uh, few years, I was based in our London office, so I really liked actually living in in London and being close to uh, Europe to attend you know, all those meetings and also the meetings in Asia. And then later on, you saw more of the meetings start to happen in the U.S. Initially, the U.S. was a little bit behind in terms of their, their movement toward the standard. Then later, you saw, you know, meetings in, you know, places like Florida and Chicago and other parts of the U.S. I actually still have friends, believe it or not, that uh, work in uh, wireless standards. So now they're working on, you know, 5G and uh, I talked to, you know, some of them, you know, periodically, and they've been to some of the major cities that host these meetings, you know, 10, 15 times. So you can kind of, you know, get to know a lot of these cities across the world in a different way when you've been to them so many times. So while you were working on, on some of this technology, did you know at the time that the infrastructure you're working on is going to be critical to, to phones and smartphones and I know you kind of mentioned traveling in these foreign countries, and I'm sure some of them might have been a little bit further ahead than the United States. Did you ever think that that technology would be, you know, ubiquitous in the U.S.? Yeah, that's that's a good question. You, know, you kind of have to think back in terms of how people used cell phones back then, and and how people use cell phones now. We we definitely knew it was important. We knew tons of money had been invested. We knew there was uh, tons of pressure. Uh, uh, to us, it was just work. You know, we were trying to, you know, work efficiently in terms of defining and moving the standards forward. But we really had no idea that would lead to the current usage that we see today. I mean, there were different kind of speculations in terms of killer apps and things like that that would be built on top of the technology. And there were different working groups that kind of, worked on those different subcomponents. For instance, uh, I actually, I vividly remember being in one of those working group 
uh, meetings in a hotel in uh, London in 2002. It was a working group on one of the special parts of the standard called MBMS. That stands for Multimedia Broadcast Multicast Service. Essentially, it's a, a type of uh, technology within the standard that allows one to, say, receive uh, broadcasts of, say, video clips in an efficient way. And we were sitting in the meeting, I remember we were talking about the different aspects of it, and one of the delegates from, the, from one of the other companies was proposing different changes to standard, you know, as part of that, they were talking about how it would be used. I remember when someone saying, hey, for instance, you know, one might receive on their mobile phone video clips when someone scores a goal in a soccer game or some other sporting event, and that's part of the application that this technology would be used for. I remember sitting in that hotel thinking, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in the world. <laughs> in terms of who would want to do that. Why wouldn't you just watch the game on TV? <laughs> Who's going to be like looking at their phone on some small screen to see a highlight of a goal, right? But of course, nowadays, <laughs> everyone has ESPN and all kinds of, you know, apps on their, on their phone. They're sending videos of their kids and all kinds of stuff in terms of, you know, sharing. So, uh, you, know, exactly. to, you know, think about it from a broad perspective. We had no idea that it would kind of... Uh, turn to what we see now and, and you spent five years at lucent sounds like you ended around 2002 you decide to go to the university of miami you know what kind of spurred you to go back to academia you know i assume the dot-com bubble might have played a hand in that well there was definitely a a, a downturn in the market but our, our position actually working in standards was relatively secure because that was one of the bets that you know telecom you know, and wireless communication was making that had to pay off. So even though a lot of different departments at many of these tech companies were definitely having layoffs and uh, setbacks, we were actually relatively okay. I was actually just planning on coming back to the U.S. after living in Europe for several years, and I was looking at my options. And I kind of thought to myself, okay, I've been working in, you know, engineering uh, you know, in wireless telecom for a while, I hadn't really worked in terms of, you know, publishing, publishing anything in terms of an academic perspective, in terms of utilization of my PhD. And I thought, hey, let me, let me try uh, that for uh, a different uh, route. And uh, I had some contacts at the University of Miami. Uh, I interviewed also some places in tech. It was a somewhat of a difficult choice and I ended up deciding to give uh, academia tries and it ended up leading to uh, an 11-year career as an academic after which is somewhat unusual usually after a PhD or postdoc uh, one goes directly into academia I end up going into industry in an applied setting for uh, five years and then went back to academia so uh, it's, it was somewhat unusual. I was going to ask a little bit about your, your time at the University of Miami. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your general teaching philosophy and, and maybe how that was impacted a little bit by your time teaching in New York in the public school and maybe a little bit about the, the research that you were working on while you were there. Sure. I would say my general teaching philosophy is very similar to you know a lot of folks that teach. I'm a big believer in terms of learning by doing, number one. And number two, trying to let folks know the actual applications that material is used for. You know, you don't want to have too much of an abstract approach where it's all essentially textbook and theoretical. You want to have an appreciation of how it's used, 
the importance of it and actually practice by learning by doing. So that I would say is my general teaching philosophy. And in terms of, uh, you know, relation to research, you know, it's important also to, you know, show folks what's active in different disciplines and sub-disciplines, expose them to, you know, different angles there. You know, as far as different types of students and students' population and your reference to, say, teaching at a high school level, of course, is completely different in college. I remember when I first got in a, in a college classroom and I was thinking back to, you know, my days of teaching in a New York City public school, I was thinking, wow, it's, it's so quiet here. <laughs> you don't have like, you know, disruptive students where you have to actually deal with, you know, uh, behavioral challenges in terms of, you know, kids getting in fights and stuff like that. I never saw that in a, in a college classroom, fortunately. <laughs> oh, you, you obviously didn't uh, teach at, at UCLA's molecular biology department because there were definitely a few rowdy kids, one of whom might have been Pranav, so... I'll be in that story later. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about your uh, research at uh, the University of Miami? What were you focus on? Yeah, I would say it's kind of two main tracks. Uh, initially, I was a professor in the uh, business school at the University of Miami, and most of my research on on that end uh, centered uh, similar similar to a lot of the stuff I had done uh, back in grad school. So you have uh, essentially two types of you know publications. You can work on publishing methodology, essentially innovations in statistical methodology, where you try to develop newer methods that have improvements over other methods in terms of either you know different types of data challenges or you know, estimators in terms of statistical inference. That's one line of research I was working on. And also later, I got uh, involved in some collaborations at the University of Miami in the medical school. I, I worked with uh, folks over in the uh, Division of Clinical Pharmacology, where you're actually working on more biostatistical applications, you know, clinical trials, trying to learn more with respect to, say, physio physiology in terms of how the body works. Uh, I worked on some studies related to potassium handling studies where we ran studies with respect to trying to learn more about the actual underlying physiology and advance, you know, the, the state of knowledge on that, on that front. So essentially two, two parts, you either essentially work on advances on the actual methodology and you also have a lot of research that is collaborative and more applied, uh, more on a, on a biostatistical perspective. And that was probably your first foray then into kind of towards studying the human body a little bit more from a statistical lens. Yeah, yeah. I uh, it's kind of funny how that that came about. It actually uh, was a, a very fruitful collaboration, and it just kind of came about somewhat randomly. Uh, our uh, departmental secretary one day actually, you know, received a phone call from the medical school where they were looking for someone to help with respect to some of the design of their experiments and she you know she transferred the call to me and said hey we have a, a doctor over in the uh, in the uh, medical school that's looking for some statistical collaboration at the time i was thinking hmm you know uh, should i accept this call right i'm kind of busy right now and uh, i ended up accepting the call and and, and uh, talking to him about some of the problems they had in terms of the experiments they were running and like I mentioned, end up being a, a very fruitful collaboration. So sometimes in life, you know, uh, a, a random call or a decision you make ends up, you know, turning into a, a relationship that's very valuable in the long term. 
So I will say this. It was a random call that Pranav called me with an idea for a podcast. And that's kind of how this started. So very thankful for that call. Yeah, you definitely never know what, uh, what's going to happen from some of those random calls. Um, and so after you spent about eight years at the University of Miami, and then you, you moved to Nashville to take a job at, at Vanderbilt, what kind of spurred that, that move? Yeah, I was interested in a lot of the things going on at Vanderbilt in terms of the biostat department there. They have a very innovative biostat department there that was actually founded by a uh, well-known biostatistician by name of Professor Frank Harrell. And I admired a lot of his work and a lot of the things they were doing in the department. A lot of things with respect to research on uh, reproducibility and innovation in terms of statistical uh, methodology. And uh, I started the conversation uh, on that uh, dimension with some of the folks there. And, you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up working there as a faculty member in the biostatistics department at Vanderbilt in Nashville. And uh, kind of funny story there, too. When I initially went to, uh, to, to the interview at uh, Vanderbilt, uh, mind you, at that time, I lived mainly in big cities. You know, I was from Boston, you know, at that time, or up until that time, I lived in New York, L.A., Chicago, London, and Miami. So Nashville didn't really seem to fit in, in that equation. And I remember going up to Nashville thinking uh, that uh, it was going to be this, you know, really small southern town that I, I might not like. But I ended up liking it a lot. Uh, Nashville is a really great city if you haven't been there. It has a lot of the benefits of, of a big city without a lot of the, uh, you know, challenges and, and uh, issues of a big city. Yeah, I got a chance to uh, visit Nashville and I had the same thought going into it. I didn't think I'd be a fan of the city and completely changed my mind going there. Just a great bar scene, great city overall. So after Vanderbilt, take a sabbatical and you start working for an MIT startup. Was this something uh, a friend of yours started back at MIT or how did you end up at? Uh, I actually didn't know the founders. I had a contact there that worked uh, in the analytics department. And, uh, you know, I, I, I talked to them in terms of what they were doing. It sounded like really interesting work and essentially ended up leading their analytics team. And, uh, you know, it, like, uh, as, as name implies, a startup is a small company usually. So it was something new to me. And, you know, you're talking about a company that's you know, under 100 people. It was called uh, Afanova. It was started by a couple uh, MIT PhDs. It was essentially a late stage startup at that point. But it was a lot of fun and uh, very enjoyable to work in that, you know, small company setting where you essentially knew everybody, right? If you wanted to, you know, get something done, you, you know, to walk down the hall and, you know, knew everyone by face and name, which was, was really nice. From the flip of a coin, you go from a small startup to, you know, one of the biggest companies out there right now, Amazon. What was your journey like to Amazon and I assume Seattle? Yeah, uh, good question. I've been at Amazon five years now. It's kind of gone by very fast. I work in the supply chain optimization technology organization. That's known as Scott for short. And essentially in one sentence, Scott owns the automation and algorithms for Amazon's worldwide supply chain. For those of you that don't uh, know a lot about supply chain, there are essentially you know, several main building blocks of any supply chain. You have forecasting, trying to predict the signal 
with respect to demand for products. You have sourcing, trying to figure out where to get the products from. You have buying, trying to figure out how much to buy of a product and when to buy that product in terms of automated buying. You have placement, trying to figure out where to put the products in your supply chain network. And finally, you have fulfillment. When someone orders a product, trying to figure out how to get that product to the customer in the, in the most efficient, fastest way. Those are the main building blocks of supply chain and Scott essentially has uh, departments for all those different uh, components and the, the part of Scott that I work in and I work in a part of Scott called uh, simulation and experimentation or, or CIMEX for short. I lead the science and engineering for CIMEX and we do essentially two main things. We, we try to drive innovation through experimentation, trying to improve all those different things I just mentioned through experimentation, essentially trying to assess if new ideas are gonna work when they're actually rolled out. And, and two, we also try to predict inventory flows via simulation where we try to simulate our supply chain you know, in a, a simulated environment, one of the largest distributed uh, simulations that exists. And we do this to try to drive more efficient operational planning essentially more efficient labor planning and capacity planning, especially as we get closer to peak, you know, uh, fourth quarter where demand is higher, trying to uh, assess the uh, labor and capacity needs of our network uh, by predicting those inventory flows uh, through our simulation systems. Random question. When you're talking to mm -hmm. someone outside of Amazon or, or outside of your department and you, you're talking about Scott, um, and you mentioned Scott kind of owns this or, or Scott is mm -hmm. this. Has anyone uh, been confused and thought of Scott as a overworked person at Amazon and, and been like, wow, Scott does a lot of things. The name Scott. Yeah. <laughs> not, not yet, but that's uh, that's a good uh, question. I don't know any uh, Scott's actually in, in our department. So I guess if we had some with the name Scott, then uh, they could try to uh, impute that onto themselves. <laughs> <laughs> So you've been at Amazon for, I think you said, almost five years now. Um, you know, what keeps you you challenged at work? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Essentially, it's the combination of working on hard, challenging problems with smart, collaborative people. There's a lot of, you know, uh, problems that are unsolved. They're very large-scale problems. They're very complex problems. And the problems where you can actually see the impact at the end of the day, the goal is to try to help the customer. We're not essentially trying to develop technology for technology's sake or try to just develop new theoretical uh, accomplishments. It's all about the customer in terms of how we can, you know, create a more efficient supply chain network to, to serve the customer. So that definitely uh, keeps me challenged and motivated that, challenge in terms of the problem space, uh, the people, and also the impact in terms of potentially seeing the impact of your work. Uh, that's one of the things I like uh, a little bit better than being an academic. Also in, in academia, sometimes the impact is delayed. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have you know, your publications that you can work on and you know, sometimes the publications do lead to you know, applied impact, but definitely in, in my setting, it's, it's definitely fast moving and you get to see the impact uh, of your work and work on those challenging problems. As I mentioned, definitely a great opportunity for learning. 
you know, uh, you know, I'm constantly learning, not just from the problems, but from the, the people I work with. It's definitely a great place for growth in that perspective. I guess for, uh, you know, scientists and engineers considering opportunities at Amazon, what advice would you give them? Definitely to always continue to learn just when you finish either undergrad or grad school, that should not mark the end of your learning. A lot of folks, you know, think of it in terms of a, you know, binary thing. It's continuous throughout your whole career. You're always learning, not just on the technical side, but also on the general personal development, leadership and people side. So one of the biggest things I try to recommend to folks as they start their career is to really focus on continuous learning, read a lot, uh, try to learn a lot about time management, and also look for work that you know you consider meaningful. If you can get that combination of you know meaningful work and meaningful relationships, you're definitely uh, going in the right direction. So one of the things I, I wanted to to mention here. So a little bit of a tangent, but the uh, the singer Pipple, he affectionately refers to himself as Mr. Worldwide. But I think that title might better serve you because you've lived in, you know, seven major cities and in, in major areas. And I'm going to list them here for our listeners that are just keeping track. So Boston, L.A., Chicago, London, Miami, Nashville, back to Boston again, and now at Seattle. Maybe kind of your thoughts on having traveled so much and living in, you know, kind of across the United States mm -hmm. and even internationally? Yeah, I always get the question in terms of, hey, what's your favorite city? And, and the shorter answer, short answer is there's really no favorite. You know, when you live in a place, you know, your experience in that place is connected to, you know, many things. It's connected to the phase in your own life that you were in at that time. Right. And it's also connected to the state of the city that existed at that time, too. So they're both, you know, very dynamic. Like, for instance, uh, when I lived in New York in my early 20s, you know, I love New York in terms of, you know, the, the fast pace, the density of people and all the things to do. You know, nowadays, I, uh, it's a little bit different. I have three kids. I live, you know, in a, a suburban environment now uh, in Seattle. And uh, I, I love it in terms of the, you know, advantages of, of that sense. Uh, so it's really a combination of, of multiple things. And, uh, you know, every city has a lot to offer in, in different dimensions. I'll give you an easier question then. Uh, you mentioned you have three kids. Mm -hmm. Favorite kid? <laughs> uh, there is no favorite kid, definitely, uh, in terms of that. They definitely create challenges in different dimensions. I actually have, uh, I got a little bit uh, of a late start in the kids department. So I have uh, twin boys that are a year and a half, and my daughter is uh, three and a half. So uh, there's definitely no one single f uh, favorite, but they uh, are unique in, in their own way. Even the twins, they're, they're fraternal twins, not identical twins. So uh, even though they uh, were born 13 minutes apart, they are, are nothing alike. And, and I bet you're loving that one year of teaching high school <laughs> students in New York uh, as these kids are growing up and you have to deal with all the ruckus. And so um, the, the last two questions that we, we love to ask our guests, what is your favorite UCLA memory? And who is your favorite Bruin? Yeah, in terms of favorite UCLA memory, 
I wouldn't say that uh, there's one particular moment. I have a lot of memories that, you know, are associated with, you know, different aspects of, you know, LA as, as a city. Um, uh, I mean, those of you that are, you know, are familiar with LA, you know, there's a lot of smog in LA, or at least there used to be. And every now and then the smog would lift. And then all of a sudden you would see these mountains that you didn't know existed before. And you would see these snow capped mountains and the, you know, the skyline and, and uh, the, the ocean. So uh, I used to really love uh, driving around in, uh, I had this old car. I had a 1966 Chevy Malibu convertible. And uh, I used to love kind of just driving around with the top down on those days where you could see the mountains. And uh, during the baseball season, when uh, uh, the Dodgers were playing and listened to Vin Scully on the radio with the top down, kind of driving down, uh, you know, either Sunset Boulevard or Santa Monica Boulevard, that, uh, that was priceless. And what about who your favorite Bruin is? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. There's so many uh, Bruins that have, have made an impact. I would say my favorite Bruin is Meb. Keflazigi. He actually was a uh, multiple NCAA champ in the track and would later go on to win the Boston Marathon, the New York Marathon, and a silver medal in the Olympics. And uh, so I, I definitely admire him from, from that perspective in terms of his accomplishments. But uh, uh, many people don't know that he actually was a, uh, he and his family were refugees of war-torn uh, Eritrea. He came to this country at a, at a very young age uh, when they came to uh, California. And I actually had the honor of meeting him up at the UCLA pool. Uh, this is before he you know, won any of his uh, championships at uh, UCLA and uh, got to talking to him. We were both in the pool, believe it or not, doing water running. We both had running injuries at the time. And they, you, know, you guys have probably seen it. There's these uh, belts you can use in, to train in the water. And, and try to maintain your your fitness level but uh anyway he was he was doing it i was doing it, it was kind of weird two guys running up and down the pool in these water jogger belts and uh he you know he was, always would say hello and he ended up asking me about my own kind of training and injury and stuff like that i was thinking hey here's this you know star runner asking like some uh, old grad student about his running so he was definitely very humble and a very interesting guy so i have a lot of uh, respect for him and he's uh, in that sense, my favorite Bruins. Did you ever get to uh, run in a marathon that he also participated in? Uh, let me see. Yeah, he's run Boston and I've run Boston. So yeah, we've uh, both run Boston, but not at the same time. And of course, we would both have times that would uh, differ by many minutes. I mean, you <laughs> got to let him win sometimes. <laughs> uh... All right. Well, Thank you so much for, for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. But before we let you go, uh, feel free to give us a 30-second plug for, for something going on in your life right now. Uh, a 30-second plug for something going on in my life right now. I would say, you know, like many folks nowadays that are, you know, working from home, uh, I guess the, the theme would be, you know, being closer to family right now. It's definitely been great. Uh, I mentioned I have kids that age, have an age range from uh, one to three. So that's been, uh, you know, speaking of experimentation, that's definitely been somewhat of an experiment. You know, you have that contact that uh, wouldn't exist uh, otherwise. Uh, kind of funny story, somewhat related to that. Uh, uh, 
I speak a, a few different languages and uh, I didn't learn uh, Farsi until I was an adult. Wow. Even though I uh, am pretty much 100% uh, by blood Iranian, my folks were uh, are immigrants from Iran and their native language is Farsi. My native language is, is actually English. That's the, the first language I learned. So uh, it was very hard for me to learn Farsi. I actually learned in a class at UCLA while I was there as a uh, student. So long story short, I only speak to my kids in Farsi and they're getting, they're getting exposed to that a lot more while I work from home. So uh, that's somewhat of an experiment. We'll see if this actually works. And I can tell you one thing though, it's definitely been good for my Farsi. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for, for joining us, David. Really appreciated having you on. My pleasure. Thank Thanks again to David for joining us on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or guest recommendations at Bruin, the number one, ear at gmail.com. And please make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you enjoyed learning more about awesome Bruins. This is Pranav signing off, and hopefully everything we talked about today didn't go Bruin one ear and out the other. <laughs>